2: Hey, just so you know, this episode has some explicit content. If anything offends you, write it down on a piece of paper and then throw it in the trash, because I don't want to hear about it. Listen to discretion as advised.
3: It's 1976 at the Universal Amphitheater in Los Angeles. Thousands of people are there to see one of that year's hottest bands, Fleetwood Mac. But first, their opening act comes on stage.
4: Obviously, if you have a chance to open for Fleetwood Mac, you would like it to lead to more commercial success. And, And what happened was just the opposite.
3: That's Tim Hunter, a TV and film director. He's in the audience watching. The opening band plays a set of trippy rock songs punctuated by harmonica riffs. Their front man is a little guy, and he's butt naked except for a diaper. The crowd boos. They ain't digging it. He launches into a song about a lovesick alien who wishes his baby would come back because outer space is cold without her.
4: It was just the world's most unpopular opening act.
3: The world's most unpopular opening act? Peter Ivers. Peter confused that audience, like, why was he up there wailing on the harmonica in his pampers? Who was this guy? Today, we're going to answer that question by bringing you the story of Peter Ivor's early years. So let's go back to 1968, when Peter was an undergraduate student speaking classical Greek at Harvard. Yeah, yeah, it's easy to put those Ivy League twerps down, but as always, Peter invited you to love him. I'm Penelope Spheris, and this is Peter and the Acid King. In 1968, John Leone is an undergrad at Harvard, hustling through these underground tunnels on campus.
0: And I heard this amazing blues harmonica player echoing through the, the hallway, and I, I followed it. And there was Peter sitting on top of a, a pig amplifier playing blues harp. Most of the people I knew in the music business were Virtuosos of one kind, not another, pianist or guitar player, but I never met somebody who just played harmonica. And uh, that was interesting in itself. Peter could
3: play the harmonica like no one else. His fucking ability to play harmonica was just fucking insanely great.
5: He was a wizard with his harmonicas. He would come through the door and would announce his arrival by doing a harmonica riff. He's one of the best harmonica players out there.
3: Peter started playing the harmonica his freshman year of college, but it wasn't enough for Peter to learn the instrument. He had to master it. The summer between his freshman and sophomore year, Peter took a trip to Chicago, where Muddy Waters made his claim to fame. During that trip, he met little Walter... Muddy Waters' harmonica player. At that time, Little Walter was considered the best harmonica player alive. You know, here was this kid, his undergraduate at Harvard, you know, going over to Chicago and playing, literally playing with, um, you know, Muddy Waters and etc. That's Stockard Channing, Peter's college girlfriend and an actor known for playing Rizzo in Grease. Little Walter invites Peter into the Muddy Waters crowd, and before long, Peter is organizing shows for the blues legend. In exchange, Little Walter gives Peter harp lessons. I mean, anybody who goes to play the blues with Muddy Waters as an undergraduate at Harvard, that's an extraordinary cat. But in 1968, sadly, Little Walter dies, at a show shortly after that, Muddy Waters introduces Peter as the greatest living harp player. It's a passing of the torch. Peter's harmonica playing eventually lands him in the office of Larry Cohn, an executive at Epic Records. Here's Larry.
6: We hit it off, and, and I think either Peter or some one of the group guys told me that Peter was a musician, you know, played harmonica, uh, mouth harp. And, and my first thought was, it's not much demand for this kind of thing, but I'm certainly willing to, to listen. You know, who knows? I figured, well, here I'm going to get another blues harp player, but he was great. He was so advanced harmonically, I mean, and he did things that were really, really interesting.
3: Larry signs Peter to a two-album deal. Peter's first record is Night of the Blue Communion, which is a very late 1960s piece. It was sort of a psychedelic jazz album with lots of brushes on drums and horn squawks. Um, Not my bag, but
6: someone's. Critically, it did very well, because, you know, people who understood music, they could see that he was doing something new. He was exploring. But for the average uh, record buyer, uh, not a chance.
3: Which is another way to say, it flops
6: then i did another album with him everybody said well you know it's the typical salespeople they don't know shit from they know much about music as i know about brain surgery and outer space and uh, they didn't want to waste their time so i put peter in the studio again and i said do whatever you do and uh it never came out and they dropped peter
3: after epic drops him Peter gets a call from his Harvard buddy, Tim Hunter. Tim's scoring his first movie at the American Film
4: Institute, and he needs a composer. I encouraged Peter to come out. He wanted to come there anyway, but he basically the catalyst was that he came out to score uh, Devil's Bargain, the the film that I made at uh, AFI.
3: So Peter packs up his harmonica and heads west to Hollywood. Land of dreams, Shia uh, right. Peter's new girlfriend moves to L.A. too. Her name is Lucy Fisher, and Lucy is the love of Peter's life. Peter and Lucy met in 1969. The same way Peter devoured the harmonica, Lucy devoured plays, poetry, and art. And people flocked to Lucy just like they did to Peter. The pair came together easily.
4: And they set themselves up in the Laurel Canyon house, and uh, and that's when he started writing uh, writing songs seriously.
3: While Peter's diving into songwriting, Lucy gets a gig reading scripts for movie studios.
4: We used to hang out there and just spend a lot of time in Peter's small studio, watching him write and uh, you know and listening to the demos.
3: Laurel Canyon back then was home to a vibrant music and art scene and Lucy and Peter's home quickly became a
4: hangout. You know, he took to the scene. You could tell that he enjoyed it and felt at home there. You know, he always had a great sense of humor and a kind of an enjoyment of life that was fairly infectious.
3: My favorite memory of Peter and Lucy is from this time. Lucy, Peter, and I would drive around Laurel Canyon and try to find parties. I had a convertible Mustang at the time, and I wish I would have kept that car. Lucy would ride shotgun and Peter would be in the back seat and he would have his head right here between us and we'd be laughing our asses off, having a great time. Filmmaker Malcolm Leo also remembers cruising for parties with Peter. He'd pick Malcolm up in his shitty car and they'd just start driving.
5: He had the most ragtag sports car in the world that the top would never go up and perpetually down. And we'd be driving around L.A. freezing our ass off at night and going to these events that only he seemed to know. No
3: matter where Peter went, it seemed like he knew everyone. It was like there were no strangers. Peter just invited everyone to be his friend.
5: The crowd would separate and up would walk Peter and he wore his holstered harmonica. And he'd just go on stage and blow a few tunes and then leave. Eventually, all of Peter's networking pays off, and he lands
3: his first big movie score. Well, sort of.
2: I'm Ron Howard. This is Grand Theft Auto. Grand Theft Auto is a love story. With cars. The film
3: is called Grand Theft Auto. And it's the directorial debut from a former
2: child star named Ron Howard. We were on this accelerated post-production pace. Joe Dante's editing and, and going very quickly. And John Davison came to me and said, I have an idea for who should score the movie. I said, I haven't thought about it at all, John. Who, who would that be? Uh, Peter Ivers. This project is a low-budget car
3: chase movie. So Ron's like, uh yeah, sure, uh, harmonica
2: guy? Yeah. I just didn't know one thing about Peter Ivers. I just said, okay, <laughs> you know, maybe let's meet him. So John Davison brought Peter, and we we were going to talk about the movie and and sort of spot it.
3: Spotting is when the director and composer decide where the music cues in a
2: film will go. I mean, our spotting session would, would normally take place over a course of a couple of days maybe in a in a screening room where you could stop the movie and discuss it and go back. Our spotting session took about an hour and a half. It didn't take much more than just the running time. It's
3: just John Davidson, Peter Ivers, and Ron Howard in the room watching
2: the movie. Peter has his harmonica with him. It was just John Davidson operating the moviola. Peter Ivers there Really nice guy. Didn't have a hell of a lot to say. Had a harmonica, and every once in a while he'd stop, the you know, and point it to something, and he'd just do like a couple little riffs on the harmonica. I mean, I, I was a little thrown by this because I didn't see this as a harmonica score, and I think I said, you know, I don't, I don't imagine a lot of harmonica, and uh, and uh, John said, well, it's kind of his. Thing. he kind of writes on the harmonica it's, a, it's a, it, but no I mean harmonica might be in there but but he'll he's a pro, he's a producer he's a record producer it's gonna sound great <laughs> and then he went away and like literally a week later he had the song it was a, a title song for Grand theft auto so it was grand theft you know you stole my heart you we were in your car we were on the run having fun. but it was also professional and kind of cool. And of course, because it's Peter,
3: there's a harmonica riff about halfway through the song.
2: And um, I was pretty happy with the whole thing.
3: The film isn't any kind of a hit, but it helped establish Ron as a director and gave Peter the scoring cred he needed, too. Around this same time, Peter meets another aspiring director, David Lynch, who's working on his first film, Eraserhead.
0: I thought I heard a stranger. We've got chicken tonight. Strangest damn things. They're man-made.
3: Describing something in a David Lynch movie is like describing a bad acid trip. So I'm going to leave it to Kayla Janice. She's a film critic who studied Peter's life and writes brilliantly about David Lynch.
7: So in Eraserhead, um, Jack Nance plays a character named Henry, who is sort of living in this industrial hellscape.
2: Hello, I'm Henry.
7: Henry's at Lapel's
0: factory. Well, printin's your business, huh? Mom, it's mine. 30 years. I've seen this neighborhood change from pastures to the hell home it is now.
7: He lives in this very claustrophobic environment in sort of a single room. And at one point he's, you know, he's been sort of saddled with this deformed baby. And so Henry is left alone and he has incredible anxiety in general, which is then compounded by being left alone with this baby.
3: So while Henry is stressing out, the camera pans to the other side of the room. Then it zooms in on the inside of a radiator.
7: He sees this woman. She has a very abnormal physical appearance, but her face itself is heavily caked to make her face seem very large, very cratered, and she has extremely pronounced cheeks. And she starts to sing this song called In Heaven Everything is Fine. And the lyrics of the song are very simple. Here's a clip from that song. In It's not actually her voice that's being used for the song. The voice that is singing that song is the voice of Peter Ivers. His voice
3: is really high-pitched, a little eerie. ¶¶
7: The song itself was a huge part of why the movie Eraserhead became such a big cult hit. Um, there was a lot of a lot of interest in that song, like the band Devo ended up covering it on their
0: 1979 tour. When there's enough beautiful music, we'll come back. We'll come back and we'll kill
3: all the normal people.
2: We used to end all of our shows with uh, this character Boogie Boy would come out.
3: That's Mark Mothersbaugh, lead singer and keyboardist of Devo. He's also an Oscar-nominated film composer. He'd sing the final song of the night, sitting in a
4: playpen usually. And um, so he, he would sing in heaven every now and then.
3: In Heaven is probably Peter's most successful song. Here's a clip from the early 80s where Peter's talking to an interviewer at a club on the Sunset Strip. Without the interviewer even prompting him, Peter brings up the song.
5: You know, the the most famous song I wrote is called In Heaven, don't you? No. Are you serious? serious? The song in Eraserhead is called In Heaven. Wow. In
0: heaven. Heaven,
3: everything is fine in heaven. Everything is fine in heaven. You got your good things and I've got mine. Gong, 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 gong in heaven. His music in Eraserhead and Grand Theft Auto helps Peter get another record deal, this time with Warner Brothers. In 1974, he releases his second album, Terminal Love. Here's Jello Biafra. Yeah, the dead Kennedys guy.
2: I first heard Peter Ivers when I was still in high school and there was a, a used record store a couple blocks from the school I went to every day called Trade to Tape and Records. I not only emptied the free box every single day, but I also tried to keep up with every single record that came into the store. And in came Terminal Love. And I put it on and thought it was just about the worst record I had ever heard in my life. But sometimes... Have you ever had one of these things where the one of the worst things turns around and becomes one of the best things
3: you ever heard in your life instead? Jello may have been one of the few people who liked the songs, though. The album flops. And part of the issue is Peter's voice. Here's Kayla again.
7: He has such an unearthly voice in a way. It's, uh, you know, what, You might call a nasally voice or a bratty voice, but it's a very androgynous voice. You know, it is not a distinctly masculine voice. Peter's own press
3: release for Terminal Love reads, it sounds like Howling Wolf if he inhaled helium.
7: So his albums could never really be as commercial as he wanted them to be because his voice was a stumbling block for a lot of people because it was so unusual, it just didn't fit. With anything, you know, it is still a very unusual voice, unlike anything else out there.
3: The album's failure could not have felt good for Peter. And it came at a time when the people around him were starting to soar. His girlfriend, Lucy, was on her way to becoming one of the most powerful people in Hollywood.
7: She got a job originally as a script reader at United Artists and then quickly sort of rose through the ranks as a film executive. She moved over to MGM and then eventually was hired by Francis Ford Coppola to head up his new Zoetrope Studios.
3: Meanwhile, Peter's best friend from college, Doug Kenny, has created the National Lampoon. It was just a magazine at first, but soon the Lampoon morphs into a stage and radio show. It would launch the careers of Gilda Radner, John Belushi, and Chevy Chase, all of whom would go on to star in the first season of Saturday Night Live! As a side note, I produced film shorts for Saturday Night Live back then. I remember one day Chevy Chase knocked on my door looking for film work. After about 15 minutes of talking... Chevy, whose real name is Cornelius Crane Chase escorted my roommate Jeanette into her bedroom and they had some, yeah romping sex. That's what I recall Anyway, so back to Peter He's torn between the world where Lucy Fisher and Doug Kenny operate, the overground, as Peter called it and the underground where the artists, eccentrics and punks thrive. Here's Malcolm Leo again
5: I mean, he was out in the rock and roll world, but his girlfriend at the time was an executive in one of the film companies. And so you would, one evening he might be with Nancy Reagan and the next evening he'd be uh, with Darby Flash or Darby Crash, same shit.
3: Darby might argue it's not the same shit, but okay. As Lucy's career skyrockets, Peter's still trying to figure out what's next. What takes place between the two of them, well, that's their business. But the point is, Peter and Lucy start to drift apart. Meanwhile, a tragedy is looming on the horizon, a tragedy that would stun all of Hollywood, the death of Peter's friend, Doug Kenny. Following the success of the National Lampoon Radio Show... Doug had set his sights on the movie business, and in 1978, he released his first film, Animal House.
4: How does it feel to be an independent, Schoenstein? How does it feel to be an asshole, Niedermeyer?
3: The film was about class warfare, the preppies versus the slackers. In a funny way, it mirrored the experience that had brought Peter and Doug together in the first place. Neither of them had fit in with the snooty elite at Harvard. But Animal House was a box office smash. And all of a sudden, Doug was no longer an outsider.
0: Doug and Peter were very close friends and and kind of engaged the world as a satire. That's John Leone again. Doug sort of became the opposite from Peter. He came here and had massive success right away with Animal House, and became very rich.
3: By 1980, Doug's a multimillionaire. He's made two huge movies, Animal House and Caddyshack, and he's becoming the town's king of comedy. Stars like Chevy Chase and John Belushi partied at his
0: house. There was a period of time when everybody was doing coke for about a year and a half or two years.
3: There was this sense that things might be going a little too far.
0: You could just see it was ruining everybody's lives. It was people would stumble around and f- get in car crashes. Doug often crashed his car. You know. There were times that Doug, Jesus Christ, you know, he would answer the door without his pants on. I mean, it was—it wasn't hard to see that there was a, a disaster waiting to happen.
3: At the height of his success, Doug takes a vacation to Hawaii. One day on his trip, Doug goes for a drive. He gets out of the car and walks along the top of a cliff. And somehow, he slips and falls to his death.
0: That was the end of a long party, Uh, Doug's death. Once Doug died, I stopped doing any coke at all.
3: The National Lampoon published a tribute to its co-creator. It was a cartoon picture of a cliff with a sign that said,
0: Doug Kenny slipped here. I think that that loss harmed Peter as it did me and many other of Doug's friends.
3: By the end of 1980, one of Peter's best and most successful college friends has died. Peter's career has stalled and his years-long relationship with Lucy Fisher is on the rocks. Not too long after, they separate. There's some ambiguity about whether they actually broke up. But again, that's their business. The important thing is that when they do part ways, it's a real low point for Peter. Peter's life has started to unravel thread by thread. So when a project comes along that combines his love of music, performance, and L.A.'s underground, it feels like maybe he can stitch it all back together. But Peter has no idea
0: just what and who he's dealing with. Peter is not a rejecter of things. And I think had he been a little more careful who he trusted... He'd be alive today. That's next time
3: on Peter and the Acid King. Adios, amigos. Bye-bye and all that shit. See you on the other side. Peter and the Acid King is based on interviews recorded and researched by Alan Sachs. It's produced by Imagine Audio, Alan Sachs Productions, and Awfully Nice for iHeartMedia. I'm your host, Penelope Spheres. The series is written by Caitlin Fontana. Peter and the Acid King is produced by Amber Von Schassen. The senior producer is Caitlin Fontana, and the supervising producer is John Asante. Our project manager is Katie Hodges. Our executive producers are Ron Howard, Brian Grazer, Cara Welker, Nathan Clokey, Alan Sachs, Jesse Burton, and Katie Hodges. The associate producers are Laura Schwartz, Dylan Canrich, and Chris Statue. Co-producer on behalf of Shout Studios, Bob Emmer. Sound design and mix by Evan Arnett. Fact-checking by Katherine Barner. Original music composed by Alloy Tracks. Music Clearances by Barbara Hall. VoiceOver Recording by VoiceTracks West. Show Artwork by Michael Deere. Special thanks to Annette Van Duren. Thank you for listening.
1: Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health.